Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. I thought about uh, a next series, and uh, there were two things coming to mind. I thought about doing a theology of cats, uh, because I'm now getting mail from cats, cards from cats, Christmas presents from cats, surprisingly. And, uh, but uh, the other thing that's on my heart and on my mind is actually the church. And I think the church in the Western world right now is a concern for many of us, especially after coming out of COVID. Because early in the pandemic, many people were trying to write the, the Silver Linings playbook. Remember that? And actually, that was the name of a movie not too many years back. But Silver Lining means something good is going to come from something bad. And when the pandemic hit, and it was more serious with the, the Delta uh, version, people were, were dying at uh, a little more of a rapid clip then. Everything was shut down. And people began to look at the positive side and project that. And in all the fear and isolation, and especially early the loss, people thought, we're going to reprioritize our lives. This is going to be a chance for us to change our values. We're going to look more to God. People are going to come to God. The world will emerge better, and the church will be stronger. Remember those conversations? Here's a sample of that from a gentleman named Chip Ingram. What if there is, in fact, a God who is personal and created all that there is, who loves all people deeply and longs to have a personal and eternal relationship with them? And what if his love is extended to such a degree that God the Son would come and die to procure forgiveness and eternal life for whoever would turn from their selfish independence and self-focused idols to believe in him, Jesus, written in 2020, I believe, And what if violence, corruption, injustice, greed, power-mongering, immorality, and neglect of the poor and marginalized became so great all across the world, even among those who claimed to be Jesus followers, that he allowed this evil virus to push the global pause button that caused the world to stop? What if, from heaven's perspective, this is a severe mercy, a divine global intervention to get us to stop Examine ourselves, look up, forsake wickedness, repent of our greed and self-focus, address injustice, help the weak, love the poor, forgive our enemies, and walk in righteousness. What if in an act of severe mercy, our Heavenly Father is taking what is meant for evil and using it for good? Like a good parent, he's put us in a time out. Far from punitive, his desire is to help us to take stock, to pause, to evaluate our lives our relationships, our idols, and return to him for the life that's really life. One by one, he has revealed the false gods in whom we have trusted. And Chip is hoping that the pandemic would get a grip on all of us and the world would be a better place. Well, what can we learn here? What actually happened? Chip. Never trust a guy named Chip, by the way, to write a scholarly article. Anyway. There was a lot of loss before the vaccines in particular, before the treatments were improved, before the evolution of the virus into something that still has 
some lethal consequences, but far less on a per capita basis. And I would also agree, along with Chip, that people did reflect on their priorities for about 15 or 20 seconds. Now, people in isolation, and I live in a condo building with a lot of those people. I'm the youth movement in that condo building. There were a lot of people in isolation that truly did suffer from loneliness and depression because they were isolated and were legally required to be so. And that was one of the very cruel sides of how, in my opinion, governments handled that. But the rest of the world, those who were still going to work, negotiated work from home with their employers, now we are finding out have the worst productivity declines in about 40 or 50 years in the Western world created an ongoing dialogue about the future of work with their employers that companies around the world are still struggling with. That's what happened at work. At church, churches rushed to improve their technology footprint. We did, and and it made us better in many ways. Small churches were probably hurt the most because of a lack of tech preparedness. I'm sure some closed. Congregants now watched church online. We called it pajama church. And then congregants realized, as they became more familiar with tech, that they could now watch any church online, not just their church. And congregants had a chance to ask themselves how valuable church really is to them, or is not. And many have checked out for good. Many are simply more distanced because now church can be a Sunday morning TV show or something I'll just pick up on Tuesday night or Wednesday. Many do remain very engaged and many people are between churches looking for church homes. The good news is, because of how God has created the human family, we are created in his image and likeness. The good news, the exciting news that will never change is this. Whenever a young person is brought into the world, whenever somebody is conceived, they are conceived in God's image, they have a moral framework, they have inherent spirituality, and all of those things work in our favor. People inherently long to understand truth, moral truth, their connection to God. And nature will always drive us towards that, just seeing the world around us and our spiritual natures drive us towards God. So no matter what happens to the church, people are born into a world desiring to know the true God. That's good news. But the reality is the church has an image problem and an importance, a priority problem in the world around us. And I'm gonna say some of that's really well-deserved. Because as much as there are people leaving the church criticizing the church, I'm a pretty big church critic too. We all are. Some of the problems the church has are completely deserved. Some are unfair. But the church did not emerge from COVID stronger. The church at large. And for the next couple of months, I want to do a deep dive into the old Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, about church. That actually is a movie. Clearly none of you watched it. It's a movie. Some of you don't know who Clint Eastwood is. That's a spiritual problem. (laughs) All right, I'm gonna ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. 
It's the first gospel. Now, the way this Bible's numbered, you get about three quarters of the way through, you get to the New Testament, begins with page one again. So get to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16. We're to begin in verse 13. It's on page, actually, 13, I'm sorry, 13 of the, uh, the New Testament here. The book of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 13, on page 13. This is when Jesus predicts the founding of the church. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man, the reference to himself, is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. John the Baptist had recently been beheaded. So some thought, oh, this is John the Baptist, come back to life. Others, Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, because he's always the first one to blurt something out. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, which is his other name. Peter means Petra or rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall, be bound in, shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and raised on the third day. We're going to look at just a few key points in this passage. First, church founded on the identity and followership of Jesus. Now, this is not new territory for most of us, but there are some sort of unsettled issues in in this passage that we do debate a little bit in, uh, in theology class. Jesus is headed to the cross. This is the context. In fact, the last verse I read talked about that. That's why he's getting into this subject. He's heading to the cross. He has been, if you, if you follow the Gospels and read them at all chronologically, it's safe to say Jesus has been coy, evasive, at a minimum, about actually who he is. And there are reasons for that, because if he claims to be Messiah or king, and he does it early in his ministry, he's going to create political revolution, which he was not about. He was not going to try to create a political revolution, even though he was a king. But he wants to avoid the label Messiah early on. And once he starts performing miracles, it's really dangerous if he becomes uh, viewed as the Messiah, because now you've got a king who can do whatever he wants because he's got miraculous powers. So he sort of avoided that quite a bit. If he claims to be God or God's son, and he does it early, he's going to be accused of blasphemy. You see what happens when he gets in these debates with the Pharisees? He performs a miracle, or he he loses to the fact that he's God's son. It is not taken well. In fact, that's why he was put on the cross. Technically, from the Jewish standpoint, he was a blasphemer because he claimed to be God. But... Now it was the time because the 12 needed to be on board with who he is. They needed to know. And a massive shift was coming in how God was to be revealed on earth. A massive shift was coming. And the disciples need to understand it. They need their frame of reference to be changed. So Jesus asked the most basic question that is actually central to all of our faith. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? 
Who do people say that I am? Now, what's interesting, and Matthew references this, and he might have referenced it just because, like Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, but he might have referenced it because Caesarea Philippi had uh, like roads of temples, you know, so all of the false gods are right there represented in their various temples, and Jesus is in that district when he's asking his disciples, which is sort of interesting, is you can see the backdrop, you know, like every different kind of denomination to every different kind of pagan god in the Roman system is right there in the backdrop as Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? What's interesting is recycled prophets sort of top the list. And they start saying, well, you're, you're some dead guy, come back to life. That's what people think, all the recycled prophets. You're, you're John the Baptist who just lost his head recently. You're Elijah. Now, Elijah was to be a sort of a, in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament said John the Baptist was coming, they named him Elijah, Elijah who is to come. So a prophet like Elijah. So some said, you're, you're Elijah. People think you're Elijah. Some think you're Jeremiah. Some think you're another one of the prophets. So all of these sort of recycled dead guys are the number one answer for who Jesus is, which is kind of interesting. But then Peter responded, you are the Christ or the Messiah, Israel's king, and the son of the living God. Now that's very interesting because if you look in the Old Testament, we see allusions to Jesus' divinity in the Old Testament. We, we do. But the rabbis of Jesus' day did not ever think that Messiah would be divine, would have deity, would be God. They didn't see it. They expected a human Messiah and God's hand would be on that individual in a significant way but they did not expect God in the flesh. They just missed it. But now Peter has understood this, and it wasn't a cultural belief. He's understood it. He nailed it because he's been around Jesus. He knew the genealogy. He knew the Bethlehem birth. He knew that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. So he saw that Jesus was the Messiah. And beyond that, because nobody expected a miracle-working Messiah, a God-man, he saw the miracles. He was in rooms when Jesus raised people from the dead. He saw Jesus heal every manner of sickness. He saw Jesus do all kinds of things that nobody else could do. He had, was convinced in his heart that Jesus was also God. So he's Israel's Messiah, and he's God in the flesh or God's son, and he blurts it out. Jesus compliments him, which doesn't happen often between Jesus and Peter. Jesus compliments him said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You see this because of my Father in heaven. God has revealed this to you. And then he said, you are Peter, or Petra, rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, a couple of issues here. Just want to take a little pause. What, was that, what did that mean? What does this rock mean? Well, there are three sort of alternate explanations. A minimum of three, but three primarily, three that I'm aware of. The first one would be if you were raised Catholic. I married a Catholic girl. So if you were raised Catholic, you probably understand this theology. The Catholic Church would say that Jesus is naming Peter the first pope, that the authority to forgive sins is given to Peter. And so Peter, as the sole authority to forgive sins, which was subsequently then passed on through succession or through papal succession. So the Catholic Church, which really didn't begin for about 300 years after this, would say Jesus is giving Peter the authority of the church 
the, the ability to forgive sins, and then they will actually trace church leaders after Peter all the way to what we would consider to be really the first pope. That would be the Catholic Church's view. I think the holes in that view would be that it's really 300 years before the Catholic Church, so it, it's a little weak historically. Another view, which is not that popular in evangelical circles or in Protestant circles, but I actually think it's a viable view, is that Peter is being named as the key founder of the church. Even though it's not necessarily the first pope, he is the first primary and key leader. He was the initial speaker at Pentecost. He was the most prominent of the 12 in the early church until the apostle Paul emerged. So it's very legitimate to say Peter, that, that Jesus is saying, Peter, I'm going to found the church on you, and that that is a legitimate view, not as the first pope, but as its first key leader. That's a legitimate view. But the third view, and probably the most popular view in Protestantism would be that it's Peter's confession of Jesus' identity that is the foundation of the church. That Jesus is Israel's king and is God in the flesh, and there will be a movement, an ecclesia, a group of people called out, ecclesia, called out ones who are going to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And on that foundation, a new movement will start. The new assembly or church would be a massive movement of people from all nations and all peoples who come to that conclusion about Jesus. Now, I want to I say something, and I don't think I should have to say it, but I'm going to say it because of where the church is at in the Western world. The church is only the church if it embraces Jesus' views about himself and about other things. When Jesus is saying the foundation of the church is, is your view of me, my identity, my teachings, then we can't say we have the church when we have people actually denying who Jesus is and his teachings and calling themselves the church. But it's not simply a list of subscribers. It's not just a number, it's not just church membership, it's not just checking the right box on the Who's Jesus questionnaire. The second point, church is the unstoppable reign of God on earth. We don't think of it that way, do we? No, we're church critics. Think of everything wrong with, with the church and how it's hurt us and how it's ineffective in the world. And, I'm going to give you some statistics on that. You're going to be a little surprised at how the church is doing in the world. Jesus wasn't wrong when he said it's the unstoppable force of God in the world. A couple of phrases I want to look at here as Jesus says this. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, what's interesting is you probably have some translations out there that say the gates of hell. It's probably not the best translation because there are a couple of words that that uh, Jesus could have used, that Matthew could have used here. One of them would have been Gehenna. Gehenna, which, which actually, Ge means valley, Hinnom means Hinnom. Valley of Hinnom was actually a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. It was always on fire, it was a nasty place. All the refuse was dumped there. Jesus used Gehenna as sort of a metaphor for hell. That's not the word he uses here. So he's not saying the gates of Gehenna will not prevail against it. He uses the word Hades, which sometimes we view as more like hell, but Hades can also mean more like death or the afterlife. So we're not sure what Jesus meant here. Typically, Hades means death. 
possibly it could be referring to the forces of evil. So Jesus is saying probably one of these two things. This new group of people, this ecclesia, these called out ones who acknowledge that I'm the son of God will overcome all assaults of the evil one. In other words, the great battle between God and Satan, Satan will not win. The church will prevail. It will be a great movement around the world. That actually could be what he was saying. Or he could be saying this, this ecclesia, these called out ones who identify me as the son of God in humanity will move forward beyond death. In other words, beyond the death of all of you apostles. It's going to change the world. It's not just dependent upon you. It's a movement that can't be stopped. Even your deaths won't stop it. It's possible he's saying that. I like it better when it's the gates of hell, Gehenna, but that's actually not the word that's used. But it preaches better. And sometimes that's more important. No, that's not true. Not true. Not true. The other word here is kingdom. Keys to the kingdom. Now that's very interesting. He says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Well, in, in a real simple way of looking at it, that would be the kingdom is sort of God's reign on earth. But how is that language typically used? Because it's very specific language. What kingdom? This word is usually designated to the Old Testament theocracy. Theocracy is God is king. Theos, God, Chrissy, kingdom, kingdom of God. It's the theocracy of Israel in the Old Testament. The kingdom of God from Genesis 12 until the end of the Old Testament, so about three quarters of your Bible, is God's work through Israel. Israel's God's kingdom on earth. Israel was supposed to be a light to the world. There's this treaty between God and Israel in, in Exodus and again in, uh, in Deuteronomy where, where God is saying, if you obey me, I will bless you and all nations will come to know that I am the true God because of how I protect you and bless you on this little piece of land between between a few major continents and on all the major trade routes, that's how the world is going to come to know me. Israel was supposed to be the way, the vehicle through which the world would know God, but we all know that that didn't work out so well because Israel didn't stay faithful to God, and so he withdrew that blessing. And so there's some language around this time in Jesus' life where he talks about the emergence of the church as a replacement of the kingdom of Israel. Now, this is maybe some theology you don't care about, but I want you to understand that's what's going on here. In fact, here's another verse where Jesus says this. He actually threatens this. Matthew 21, 43. This is a few chapters later. Jesus is talking to religious leaders who are not doing very well with him at the moment he says this. He says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. So he's saying that to Israel's religious leaders. This verse follows a parable which was spoken to these religious leaders who are rejecting Jesus. It's a statement that the church is going to be replacing Israel. It's God's vehicle to tell the world who he is. And it follows a parable which alludes to Jesus being rejected and killed by the religious leaders. The point is, the church is God's plan. The church is God's reign on earth. Now, if you've got a theologically developed mind, I, I hope you're asking this question. Did God sort of do a pivot here? You know, if you look in the Old Testament 
and how God was going to use Israel. Did God pivot? Did God sort of change his mind? Did God regroup? That is a great question for another sermon. Because if you had to force me to say yes or no, I would actually say yes. There is no reference to the church in the Old Testament. But I know that causes some of you tremendous theological problems, and you're not going to be able to sleep tonight because I said that. But the church is not a plan moving forward. It's the only plan. It's the plan. It's the reign of God. It's the kingdom of God. It's not simply a club of people who answer the Jesus question okay. It's a group of people who believe at all the teachings of Jesus. It's a group of people who have a heart for the world and want to bring Jesus to everybody. It's a group of people who organize themselves into local bodies or communities to be Jesus in their communities, in their families, in their countries. It's the body of Christ on earth. That's why that metaphor is used of us. It's Christ's body on earth. It's a big deal. The church is a big deal. It's plan A, and there is no plan B. So when we check out of it, as though it's irrelevant and doesn't matter in our lives, we are saying the plan of God to reach a lost humanity is something that, I don't know, it's not really good enough for me. Church is a big deal. It's so much more than we make it. It's so much more. It is God's reign. When the church works, it is noticeable. It is influential. It is life-giving. It is culture-influencing. Throughout history, the hospitals, the culture changes, the raising of the value of all people, especially women and children, in societies around the world throughout history has happened where Christianity has gone it has brought freedom to billions of people. The church, as a subtle influencer in cultures, has changed the world. Now, I know it's easy to pick on the church for the things we know it has done wrong, and it has done some bad things. But it has also done some great things and has changed the world. Third, church, we carry the forgiveness of sins or salvation mandate and responsibility. Now, this is a really interesting statement by Jesus. He uses this phrase, binding and loosing. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been already loosed in heaven. So these terms come out of Jewish culture, Jewish rabbinic teaching. And in Jewish culture, if a group of rabbis got together and they were going to bind something, that would mean they're going to forbid it. So let's say I'm a parent and my kids are in middle school and early high school. So we're going to go back a ways in my life, about 10 years or so. And they're in middle school and early high school. And I want to bind their curfew. I'm going to bind them by giving them a curfew. So I'm saying you cannot be out past 10 o'clock. That is me creating a binding rule. You can't be out past 10 o'clock. Well, then let's say they get a little older and they prove themselves to be a little more trustworthy. I say, okay, now I'm going to loose something. I'm going to permit something. Now you can be out until 12 o'clock, but you need to be home at 12 o'clock because as my mama said, nothing good happens after midnight. And wasn't she right? That Ellen, I mean, she's, she had a few views that were not good and there's a getting corrected in heaven right now, like, you know, Contemporary Christian music, she's singing a lot of it. She's probably not comfortable, but she's learning. 
Anyway, where was I? Nothing good happens after midnight. Okay. Point is, the context here is the keys to the kingdom that he's giving to his apostles. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. That's not the binding and loosing, the list of do's and don'ts, the curfew. It's not that. This is, this is about who gets in. He's saying, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. It's about entrance into the kingdom of God, this new reign of God, this church, this ecclesia. It's about who gets in and who doesn't. It's about our carrying the gospel to others. And when they receive it, forgiveness has been loosed and permitted. When they reject it, forgiveness has been bound and forbidden. We are the carriers of forgiveness to a lost humanity. We are the purveyors of salvation. It's a big deal. Look at Matthew 16, 19. You say, well, it doesn't say that exactly well, there's another passage in John where it really does say that. So in 1619, uh, it says, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That says Matthew 21:43. That was the last verse we looked at. This is the verse in our passage. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been already bound in heaven. Whatever you loose shall have already been loosed in heaven. In other words, we're not making heaven's decisions for God. Those decisions have already been made. We're carrying the information. John has a similar verse, certainly here. It just states it clearly. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you refrain or if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. In other words, we are the purveyors of forgiveness. We're carrying out heaven's decisions. We don't do the forgiving. We carry the message, the vehicle of grace to a lost world. In that sense, we're heaven's gatekeepers. It's not St. Peter, it's us. It was St. Peter, now it's us. It's us. As every statement made to them, we pick up and accept the responsibility for. That's why the church is so vital, it's such a big deal. It's why church health matters. That's why when churches are broken, it's tragic because it removes the vehicle through which God is trying to touch a lost humanity. We can't afford for churches to be closing. We can't afford for churches to be dysfunctional. We can't afford for churches to be fighting and destroying themselves. The church is a big deal. It's the purveyor of salvation to humanity. We have to be what God intended because God loves humanity. So let's look at a few apps here. First, the church is actually faithful local churches. We say, that's not what Jesus said there. Let's talk about this for a second. This is a point of clarity, but it's an incredibly important one because of what's going on in the world today. It has been going on for a long time. COVID just put it on steroids. Jesus spoke of the church here as the universal church. Now, if you were in a theology class, we'd all say there is a universal church and there are local churches. The universal church would be everyone throughout all of history who has embraced Jesus Christ as Son of God, Savior, and Lord. They're all members of the universal church. Now, Jesus spoke of the universal church at a time when the universal church didn't exist, nor did local churches. It was futuristic. This is going to be the church, the called-out group of people. But the epistles, the writings of the apostles, the apostles through the epistles tell us the rest of the story. 
Jesus didn't talk about the local church and how it would manifest itself, but the rest of the word of God does. People organized themselves into local churches, and it wasn't just some sort of evolution of how people function together. It's in the scriptures. We're supposed to do this. They elected and appointed qualified leaders who rose up among them as spiritual leaders. They, they, they all functioned together as the body of Christ in their communities. They were commanded to meet together. And when they didn't meet together, they were admonished for it. There was no pandemic then. There was no pajama church, though, either. They got together. And when you didn't get together, you were missed, and there was some accountability. There was no such thing. I need you to hear this, and I really love everybody. There was no such thing as an obedient Christian living independently of this structure. No such thing. There is no such thing as a Christian living independently of the local church. It's not Christianity. You might have checked the Jesus box, but it's not Christianity. All local churches are part of the universal church. Not all universal church Christians are part of the local church. And when you're not part of a local church, you cannot do the mission of Jesus. I want you to think about that. Because I know a lot of you have friends. I heard it right before this sermon. And all kinds of people are Christians who don't go to church anymore. Well, here's the problem. So if those Christians, and I might be speaking to some, maybe some of you typically aren't, maybe some of you who are listening online, and I want you to keep listening online, but here's the deal. Let's say that you have a heart for lost people, which you should have, and you try to reach your neighbor with the gospel. What are you going to tell them then? Follow Jesus and come to the church of me? Follow Jesus and watch Andy Stanley online? Who is better than me? Follow Jesus and, well, just follow Jesus. Follow his teachings, but ignore three quarters of the New Testament that talks about your local church connection. Follow Jesus and just try to do his ethics, but not anything else. It makes no sense. It's, it's like saying you're a, a member at the athletic club, but you never show up and work out. But you're a member. You cannot follow Jesus apart from the local church and have a meaningful New Testament Christianity. These groups of people maintain doctrinal purity, there was accountability, they reached their neighbors, they reached their communities. Today the church is unpopular, and I get it. Everyone has a painful experience about the church. I do. I'm here because of a painful experience with the church. I'm here because of massive unethical behavior, most of which was not mine. But the local church is how God, or is how Christianity is intended to be lived out and experienced. It's imperfect, but it's your best choice at successful faith. I kind of look at it like marriage. Is marriage a perfect institution? You know, but most of us, billions of people have been married. If you ask billions of people who have been married about how marriage is, what are they going to say? Well, it's disappointed me at times, you know. 
but you still seem to want to come back for it. Even when it doesn't work out, people are like, well, I'd like to try another one. I'd like to try a third. I'm going to try this till I get it right because we know in general marriage is supposed to be a positive and good thing. Take Dee Dee Brushhaber. This morning when I left the home, she was skipping through the kitchen. She sings, count your blessings, and joy unspeakable and full of glory. She's a happily married woman. There have been slight moments of disappointment. In slight moments of disappointment, being married to the brush. Slight moments of disappointment. But in general, it's been a good thing. Marriage has been good for me, but has it been always a blissful experience? No, 31 years is not always blissful. There were moments of tension. There were moments of arguments. There were disappointments with each other. But we're committed to marriage because it's generally a very good thing for us. It shapes us. We've had many joys together. We brought four wonderful children into the world. Church is sort of the same thing. Most of the time, for most people, it's been a good thing. If you just focus on the pain, we can all rip on the church. But what was the church? It was people who are sinful, who disappointed us. I've got that too. We've all got that. But don't give up on it, just like don't give up on marriage. Don't give up on the church. It's two billion people worldwide. Of course it's disappointed us. How can two billion people not disappoint you? But mostly it's a meaningful experience. And it's plan A for the world to know God. And there is no plan B. You and your TV and your living room are not plan B. It's plan A. Second, Jesus was right. The church is moving forward and prevailing. Now, we don't look at it this way because we live in the Western world. I'm from the U.S. I love Canada. Uh, but Canada and the U.S. both are shifting to the, to away from faith. Canada has done more of it than the U.S. has, but it's interesting right now, Canada is actually doing better statistically at holding where it's at compared to the U.S. I think one of the reasons for that, in the U.S., there's a lot more nominal Christianity. In Canada, there's probably not as much benefit to being a Christian anymore culturally. In the U.S., it's not negative, but there's been a big shift, and it's happening right now in the U.S., of nominal Christians away from faith entirely. So, but we would all agree, you know, it's not really encouraging what's going on in Europe here, some in the U.S., but that's not all of the world, people. Let me tell you some stuff, some good stuff, so you're going to get excited. I'm warning you. So if you've got a heart issue, get ready for some excitement. Take that pill right now. All right. In Iran, Mehdi Dibaj, an Assemblies of God minister, spent nearly 10 years in prison for his faith. A convert from Islam in 55, Dibaj is given every opportunity by the authorities to regain his freedom. He's asked to sign a paper admitting he was wrong and he wants to return to Islam. When this fails, he's beaten, tortured, put through mock executions. His wife succumbs to this, converts to Islam, and marries another man. But his children refuse to renounce their faith. Then he's offered freedom in exchange for admitting he's mentally unstable. It's only after fellow pastor Haik Havsipian, mayor, chairman of Iran's Protestant Council, courageously sends out an open letter to Western media publicizing his plight that he is freed. Not long after, Haik disappears and his murdered body is found. Still, Dabaj refuses to flee and continues his pastoral ministry. Soon he meets the same fate. He's killed. What's the result? So there was a lot of persecution against uh, evangelical ministers in Iran. 
1977, there were 2,700 evangelicals in Iran out of 45 million people. That is nothing, not even a drop in the bucket. Of these, only 300 were former Muslims. Today, this was written in 20 years ago, there are close to 55,000 believers, of whom 27,000 are from Muslim backgrounds, and it's estimated today by Christianity Today and others, there are 750,000 to a million people in Iran who are professing Christians. That's, the curve is like that. It's shockingly moving forward. In his book, Witness Essentials, Dan Meyer lists some encouraging statistics about the growth of the church around the world. This is 10 years old. In 1900, Korea had no Protestant church. Today, there are over 7,000 churches in just the city of Seoul. At the end of the 19th century, the southern portion of Africa was 3% Christian. Today, 63% of the population is Christian. In India, 14 million of the 140 million members of the untouchable caste have become Christians. More people in the Islamic world have come to Christ in the last 25 years than in the entire history of Christian missions. In Islamic Indonesia, the percentage of Christians is now so high that the Muslim government won't print statistics because it's now over 15% in a Muslim country. In China, it's estimated there are now more self-avowed disciples of Jesus than members of the Communist Party. Even the most conservative estimates suggest that China will soon have more Christians than any country in the world. Across the planet, followers of Jesus are increasing by more than 80,000 per day. 510 new churches form every day. Meyer says the irony is that except for the Middle East, where Christianity was born, and Europe and America, to whose civilization it gave birth, Christianity is expanding everywhere else. Those are 10-year-old statistics. Today, in 2022, Lifeway Research says religion is growing faster than non-religion. There are now fewer atheists in the world today than there were in 1970. Isn't that a surprise? It's true. There's less atheism in the world at 8 billion than there was in 1970. Christianity around the world is growing about one, almost 1.2% annually. Now, I know that doesn't sound a lot, like a lot, but we're not falling behind like you'd expect. There are 2.56 billion people under the broader Christian umbrella in 2020, 2022. By 2050, it'll be 3.33 billion. And among those, when you look at the conservative part of Christianity that actually believes this stuff, that's growing the fastest. Evangelicals and charismatics, I would consider charismatics to be evangelicals, but they're separating them. 1.8 and 1.88% growth around the world. So almost 2% growth among evangelical churches that claim Jesus is the Son of God and we need a relationship with him. Charismatic churches that would claim the same but have a little different view of spiritual gifts. The global south has the fastest growth. Africa, South America, places like that. By 2050, 28 years, Africa will have 1.3 billion Christians. Latin America will have 686 million Christians. Asia, 560 million Christians. Europe, 497 million Christians. North America, about 276 million Christians. Think about this. In 1900, which was not that long ago, some of you were alive then. In 1900, don't send me anonymous letters. Please just sign your name. In 1900, Europe had twice the number of Christians the whole rest of the world possessed. 
Just Europe had two times the number of Christians that existed on anywhere else on the planet. And soon there'll be significant minority. Jesus' view on that, on the spread of Christianity, here's what Jesus would say. Told you so. Told you so. The gates of hell will not prevail against the power of the Son of God on this planet revealing who he is. Church is a big deal. So what's church to you? What's church to you? That's changed a lot in my lifetime. When I was a little boy and we were going to go to church, we'd, we'd look outside, we'd take our binoculars, we'd make sure that the dinosaurs were no longer feeding out on the plains. And once we knew it was safe passage to the building, we'd, we'd get out there in our little two-wheel cart and dad would push the cart along with me, with the family, and we'd go to church. We did that four times a week at least. Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday morning, morning service, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, and I went to Awana. In other words, think of the educational impact of four or five exposures for an hour every week into the hearts and minds of people who are Christ followers compared to what church is today only a few years later. There's a big impact when we disconnect from the church. My wish for you, and I believe what the Bible wishes for you, is that it's a weekly priority it's a weekly priority. And we, we love online presence. It's a, it's a chance for people who are interested in learning about Bethany to check us out online. It's a chance for people who are, who are ill to be able to, to, to be in a nursing home or in care or, or to, to watch church and stay connected. But for those of you who are physically able, it's not supposed to be for you unless there's a really bad snowstorm. It's not, it's not a replacement. My wish for you is that church is a weekly priority. It's a chance to worship God publicly, which we are commanded to do together as a body. We gather together as a group of people who all say, Jesus is Lord, and we're following him together. It's a chance to grow. It's a chance to learn. It's a chance to know others and to be known. It's meant to be a third place in our lives, not home, not work, but that third place where we make all kinds of connections. It's a place to serve and use our gifts. It's a place to connect others to the God that you know. One of the reasons we're willing to drop out of church is because we're not trying to connect with the people who need Jesus enough that we need to be in the church to connect them to it. That's a problem. It's a place to connect others to the God you know. We need to re-engage with church. We need to remake church into what God intended it to be as well. And we're going to start talking about that next week. Well, I'm going to pray, and as I do that, God, we thank you so much for your grace and your love in our lives. Thank you that you have created this church, a group of people that believe that you are the Messiah and the Son of God, people who are called out to follow you and love you and share you with the world. Thank you for the church all across the world, the billions of people throughout history who have acknowledged you as Son of God, Savior, and Lord. And though we wear different stripes and may feel like we play for different teams, we know that faith exists in a lot of different denominations and in a lot of different people, and even people we don't agree with in every the theological point, we 
Thank you that there are so many people who know you and, and want to follow you. And I pray that every church in the world, every church in Calgary today that's proclaiming the truth, that you would bless them and grow them and give them great fruit and that you would do it here as well as we try to reach our community, our city for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again and God bless you.